You're listening to Speak Loud, resilient stories of triumph and hope, helping you to turn your past into fuel for your best future. Here's your host, founder of the 501c3 Share, providing resource and support for trauma victims, and a survivor herself, Tiffany Barnes. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Speak Loud podcast. As always, I'm your host, Tiffany Barnes, and thank you for joining me here today. I've got a lovely guest in store for you guys. She comes from a land far and wide, Florida. (laughs) Uh, I think you're in the Tampa area. Is that right, Sarah? Yes. So she's in the Tampa area. She's got quite the story. I want to do a quick little bio on her before we get into that amazing story and some of the wisdom that she has to offer. Her name is Sarah M. Did I say it right? And I've been practicing that. Sarah M. uh, She is a survivor of a mass genocide in Cambodia. The event that claimed two million lives, but she survived. She is an inspirational speaker and an award-winning author of the book, How I Survived the Killing Fields. She graduated from Western Connecticut State University and is a member of the Women's Speakers Association. She is also a founder and director of Christian Professionals Network of Tampa Bay, and she speaks to inspire listeners to thrive from pain to purpose. Ooh, I like that. Thrive from pain to purpose. She shares her impactful messages or message, excuse me, at corporate events, conferences, churches, schools, podcasts like this one and more. As I mentioned, she resides in Florida and is about to celebrate her 33 years of marriage, unless this is outdated that I have here. Have you already celebrated? Yeah, we already celebrated. <laughs> 33 years. That's incredible. Wow. Uh, well, I want to hear all about it. Without further ado, please welcome Sarah M. Oh, thank you so much, Tiffany, for having me. You're so welcome. Yeah, I love your I love your podcast and love the 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 intention and the goal and the the message from different speakers. Thank you, I appreciate that. It's an honor to have you here. You have been through some incredible things in your life, and I would say that you are truly the epitome of the word resilience. I mean, you are such a resilient person from just reading the bio and uh, you know, kind of connecting from what I saw from some of the stuff online before I asked you to come on the show. And the reason I asked you to come on the show was because of your incredible story and what you're doing to help others out in your community. So before we get into that, though, I want to ask you the most important question that I ask every guest that comes on. What are you here to speak loud about? I'm here to speak loud about not giving up on anything in life. Yes. You you will experience obstacle and challenge and trauma, but if you have a, a purpose for your life, you will never give up. Right. And keep your sights on that purpose. Right. So that's yeah. that's a big part of it. So I love that message of never giving up, which you have never done. I mean, you, like I say, have really experienced a lot of triumph and hope in your life. So you're born and raised in Canada is that, or not Canada, Cambodia. Is that correct? Yes, Cambodia. Mm-hmm. And uh, so this mass genocide that happened, how old were you at the time? I was in college already. I was 21. Okay. When they took over our country. So tell me more about it. I'm sorry. I don't know a ton about that historical event that happened. Educate the listeners, if you will. 
Okay. Yes. Um, when when I attend college, I was far away from my home, from my family. And as you already know, most of the people, when they go to college, they left their family behind. In my right. case, it's, it's, that's the case. But in 1975, the communist Khmeru took over our country. And they came in, in the city, in the military style, like a military takeover, some, something. It, it's very scary. There's a military truck and the soldier with big guns and marching in and they they pursued to shut down the whole country and right away they start to evacuate people from the city they don't want anybody to to live in the city anymore they push us far away from the city and eventually we end up in the in the countryside and they want us to work in the rice field. Why didn't they want anybody in the city? What was the logic behind that? Do you know? Well, they they want to rebuild the country from the ground up. Mm. And so- they want to clean up the, the city. They This evolution take place because of the belief that the current government is very corrupted. Mm. We have a well, partly the right, but um, when they have that mission, they want to restart everything all over again, rebuild the country from the ground up. That's what they do. They they eliminate anybody from the from the city. So we we end up in the countryside, and I was moved two times, and I end up in the big camp. Oh, a big camp. A big camp. It's the forced labor camp. Wow. Yeah. So you were going to college in the city. Is that correct? But you were separated from your family. Yeah. So when they start pushing everybody out into the fields in the countryside, were you reunited with your family at that time? No, no. My family was too far away. Oh, wow. And they shut down everything that in, include the transportation. Mm. Even the post office, there, there is no way for me to write a letter to tell my parents what happened to me. Mm-hmm. And there is no phone. And at that time in the 70s, there is no cell phone. Right. So we have no idea what happened to our loved one. Right. So was your family, you said your family was far away, but obviously still in the same country, right? They were still in Cambodia. So how far away were they? Were we talking like three hours drive? How many kilometers or miles away were they? Probably about 300 miles away. Okay. Yeah. And was the same thing happening to them where they were located? Yes. Wow. So your family and you were basically in these forced labor camps, but just in completely separate areas of the country. Yes. So they just did it to everyone inside of Cambodia regardless. Yes. Wow. Okay. So you go into this forced labor camp and how long were you in there and and what did they make you do? Obviously you said rice fields. Rice field. Um, They make us work in the rice field all day long. 
in the intense sun. You know, the, the Cambodia is tropical mm-hmm. and the temperature is somewhere around 100 and plus. Wow. So it's very hot and we were in that heat all day long for about 15, 16 hours a day, seven days a week. We don't mm-hmm. have a break. We don't have enough time to sleep and we don't have enough food to eat. They they give us a little bit of food. So we start to feel right away, right away. We 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 have feel I feel depleted, starved sure. and exhausted. And then pretty soon I become very sick. Mm. Yeah. You were sick yeah. because you were just emaciated, like you just didn't have strength and energy because you weren't getting the food. Yeah, right. Well, how does that logic even work, though, right? Think about that. They wanted you guys to work this forced labor, but they weren't fueling your bodies to be able to actually put in the manual labor. So that doesn't really make a lot of sense, right? Yeah, they miscalculate. They miscalculate that part that they they don't have enough food prepared Mm. to give to us the the labor force. But I think also their intention is to punish us, to punish us, to make us work so hard and just humble ourselves. So punish you just because you lived in Cambodia? That's that's crazy. Punish us because we live in the city. Mm, They don't like the city like people. Wow. And these were Cambodians doing this to fellow Cambodians. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. They, they have been brainwashed by the communist regime. Mm-hmm. Is that regime still in place now? It's uh, the regime right now. I don't know what it's called. It's not pure communism, mm-hmm. but it's not pure capitalist either. Oh, I see. But at least people are now confined in the work camp like we used to. How long did this go on for you? Do you even have any clue of a time frame? Four years. Four years. Yes, I I endure that forced labor camp for four years. And during that four years, I got so sick. At one point, I, I was so close to death. Wow. Yeah, they, they sent me to a to an infirmary. They said, you need to go to the hospital. But when I got to the hospital, I realized this is not a, a hospital. There's no doctors, no medication. There's nothing to help me to get better. But the people that are in that, uh, that place are very sick. And I see them die almost every day. So I realized that I should not stay here long. I need to find my way out from here. But so did you run away? I um I want to run away right away, but I couldn't because I was so sick. How how could I run away? Uh, Right. Yeah, and I don't know where to go. Where else to go? So um then I remember about a story that showed me since I was very young. I remember that in this story, it tell me that there is God. So I remember that God. So I start to pray to God and I pray, pray night after night. And then one morning 
I woke up very early before everybody else and I tried to sneak out. I sneak out, I walk back to the working place and I realized that when I got there, I found, I met one young team leader and she was so kind and, and, and friendly and she took me in her group and she said, stay with me, I might be able to find something for you to do. So in this whole camp, you had to do something mm-hmm. in order to receive a little bit of food. Mm. If you don't do anything, they said you are sick, you go back to the, the hospital. And it's more like a death camp to me. Right. So this young team leader feels sympathy for me. And she took me in and she realized I'm too sick to do anything. So she said, hold on, let me go to the kitchen and ask them to see if they can use your help. So she came back, she said, yeah, you, you can go work in the kitchen. Kitchen. So I was so... <laughs> <laughs> You're like, I need food. I want to go to the kitchen, right? <laughs> yeah, I, I realized I will survive. <laughs> right. Yeah. So what did you do in the kitchen? You just made, which is kind of interesting because you were already very sick. So you'd think they wouldn't want somebody who's sick around the food because not that maybe what you had was contagious. You just really were just weak and fragile. Uh, but were you sneaking food in the kitchen to kind of help you rebuild your energy? Well, um, in the kitchen, my job is just to cut up some vegetable and just prep, prep mm. the, the thing for the cook. So I, I don't get too close to the food. Mm. But when the time to eat, I eat a normal food, normal portion, like everybody that work in the kitchen. But oh. the, the the workforce out there, they don't get as much. They got very little food. Interesting. Yeah. So maybe they their thought process was if you were inside the kitchen making the food and you were starving, then you would be eating it, sneaking it anyway. So they're like, oh, we'll just make sure everybody in the kitchen has a full portion. I mean, that's kind of interesting, their logic behind that, you know? Yeah. 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 So, oh. um, yeah, as the result of uh, working in the kitchen, I start to feel better gradually, gradually. For several months as I worked there, I regained my my health and I shut off some of the, you know, bad disease. So I feel better. But when when the leader saw me look better, feel better, he he pulled me out from the kitchen. Oh no. Throw me back into the rice field. So then how long were you back in the rice field from that point? More than three years. Oh wow. So all of this took place within that first year. They they you know you go in the kitchen you get more healthy and then they're like okay back out to the rice fields, so then from there you were back to the little small portions of food. Mm-hmm. So did you then again start to get sick again and become yeah. emaciated? Yeah, I start to decline, to um, lose some weight, lose my energy, and got sick. But at the end of four years, something changed. What was that? There was some noise out, 
far away, like a gun sound, like like some like some fighting going on, mm-hmm. like bomb and so on. So this this camp got moved. The leader moved us, moved all of us, moved us closer and closer to the jungle. Mm. To to escape from the sound, whatever it is. They 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 probably know, but they didn't tell us what's going on. But we just move as as they order us to move. So we start out in this big camp. We start out about one exactly one thousand people. Okay. By the time we move, they're probably less than three hundred of us. Wow. Yeah, a lot. We lose a lot of people through sickness through. Execution. They they have a way to detect some. They they talk people that have some background that they didn't don't want to keep. So some of them got executed. I never see on my own eyes, but we just lose people. Yeah. So what were they doing with these people when they were dying? Did they have mass graves? Did you see this? Yeah. Yeah. So after all this over, they discover thousands of mass graves all over the country. Wow. Because people are dying too fast, too much, too many mm-hmm. at one time. And did you did your family end up in those mass graves? No, I lost I lost a few uncles and I lost a few cousins. All male, my male cousin are are gone, and mm. my my favorite uncle that protected me during the evacuation, he didn't make it either. Oh wow! Yeah, so he have his wife and two children be- left behind. So um, it was so sad. Sure. But, yeah, but when when they moved us. Closer to the jungle, I realized that this is it. I I need to do something drastically. Otherwise, I was I will never be able to find my family. See, through the whole four years, I imagine one day I will be able to find my family. That that was something that I hold dear to my heart. That was something that keep me alive. Wow. And so they move I, you towards I, I the jungle. To yeah, so so what was your next plan of attack? What did you do? When I realized that we are we are moving to the jungle, I have a courage to plan an escape. So I gather three good friends um, to escape with me. And we did. What what did you do to escape? Did you just run in the night or how did you guys, what was your plan? Yeah, we just run at the night. We wait until nighttime. It's easy to run at nighttime because it's black, it's dark. In the the jungle, there is no electricity. Right. So it's it's dark, black. And well, we were so, so fortunate that we didn't get lost. Yeah, I was going to ask that. If there's no light, where did you go? How did you know where you were going? Sense of direction, you know? It it, it just faith. It's it our faith. And we try to track back where we came from. So we were just guessing. 
we were guessing. We just hold hand to one with one another and just pray and ask God to lead us. That's that's all we can do. There's nothing else. We don't have a map. We don't. There's no GPS. Right. <laughs> so, but anyway, um, we finally got out from there, and and then we keep walking, walking until we saw some people, and I asked for direction to my hometown, and we keep walking for a long walk for a few weeks few weeks of walking and finally I got to my hometown and and when I got there my house was my house was not there it was destroyed and uh, my family are not in that area either so I was panicked for a while but I didn't give up hope I, yeah I tracked down and I remember my aunt she used to be a nurse before everything happened. So I was thinking, oh, my aunt might work in the hospital. Mm-hmm. So I went to the hospital and looking for her. And I found her. Wow. I found my aunt and she told me where my family moved to. And and I found my family. Wow. So it took you a few weeks to walk those 300 miles. I mean, you were basically that far away from them. Yeah. Now, let's see, because I was transitioned, I was displaced a couple of times. So I'm getting a little closer. Now oh, that, sure. Yeah. Now it's far as 300 miles. Yeah. As far as you would have been if you were still in the city. Right. So yeah. you find your family. So do you, do you have a mom and dad? Did you have siblings? Yeah, I had three younger brothers. I'm the oldest. I'm the only girl and the oldest. And uh, my my mom didn't recognize me because I was just skin and bone. And mm-hmm. I I looked like a 95 years old woman. Wow. Yeah. And your family was all safe. Your brothers were there, your mom, your dad, you were all reunited. I bet that was such an amazing feeling, especially because that was what held, you held on to for your hope yes. during those four years. Yes, yes. Well, many years later, when it's quiet, my mom told me what happened to them. Mm. At one incident, they were trying to escape, come to come back to to home during the transition they were found they were found and and this uh communist sh- shoulder point the gun at them almost almost pulled the trigger wow yeah so but, what happened from there he didn't pull the trigger so then did he just take them to a different camp or what was the result no, uh, my mom was so smart, so quick at that time because my mom was very sick. Mm-hmm. Um, she she had poor health for many years. And when they found her, they found my family and she sit down and she say, and she opened her, her shirt. She said, look, 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 I am so tired. I'm so skinny and tired and I just need a few minutes of break. Please don't shoot us. I just need to catch my breath. So they, they, they 
they did not pull the trigger. Wow. And then they continued to walk towards wherever they were going when they were trying to escape? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. They got very lucky, very fortunate. Yeah. Yeah. So then when you're reunited with your family, what happens then? Is it is the transition, as you called it, over? They're not doing that anymore? They're not... The genocide is over? Yeah. They... Remember, I, I, told, I told you about some noise in the far distance? Yes. They, that was the time that the whole country was liberated. Okay. And I did not get liberated by that time. Mm-hmm. I was still with the group and I was still pushed, was pushed to the jungle. But my, my family and the, the rest of the country was liberated four months before I came home. Oh, wow. Yeah. And you were 25 by this time, right? This all happened right. when you were 21, so you were 25. So did you end up going back to college, or where did your journey take you from there? Well, there's no more college because everything was just completely destroyed. And, and the people, especially the professor and all that, had been killed. Oh, wow. They, yeah, they take the educated people, the people that have been somewhat attached to the previous government was eliminated. Mm. Yeah. So they, you didn't was, go back to college there, but you ended up in, in college in the United States. So how did you end up in the United States anyways? <laughs> well, after, after a whole year of recuperating my health, my mom see that my life will have a better future if I'm not staying in the in the country. Sure. She and she encouraged me to escape. So here we go again. <laughs> <laughs> Another escape. Let's hope you're 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 watched over again, right? Yeah. Yeah. I was watched over. Um, we crossed the border, walking across the border from Cambodia to Thailand. This border um, used to have a lot of landmines. Okay. So, but because, remember, because I was late, everybody else that got liberated early, many of them go and cross the border and step on the landmine. Uh, there was a lot of people got killed, but mm-hmm. um, but at my turn, when the time that I crossed the border, I did not step on the landmine. So, but were um, you worried about that in the back of your mind that you might? I didn't know about it. Oh, okay. You had no clue. You just thought, oh, it's regular ground here. There's no landmines. <laughs> I didn't know until long later I realized, wow, I heard about it and I had some friend who lost their family through that journey. Wow. And anyway, so I end up in Thailand and I found a refugee camp that was set up by the United Nations to receive the refugee from Cambodia. So I I went in and registered myself and I searched for my relative that had been to United States for a long time. Wow. I have one relative and my job is to look for him. Did you find him? 
Yes, I found him. But once so, you came to the United States, right? You didn't find him until then? No, I have to find him before I come to the United ah, States. Ah, I see. Be- okay. Because the point of finding him is to have him sponsor me to come. Ah, okay. Because, yeah, coming from one country to another, there is a immigration paperwork that needs to be done. Right. So my my relative did the paperwork to sponsor me and... That's why I'm here. So I'm, I'm so grateful that I'm able to stay alive and come here. And several years later, my family left Cambodia and they joined me also. So they're all here in the United States now? Yes. Wow. And where did you land in the United States? Did they put you with a family or did they give you an apartment? Did they help you with work? How did that transpire? Yeah, my relative that sponsored me, she he was in Connecticut. So okay. the paper was the paper was to bring me to Connecticut, but he got job transfer to move out from Connecticut before I ever arrived. Mm. So, uh, but but he talked to the people at the church that he belonged to, and the church people are so amazing. They helped me so much. They helped me to get started. They found me an apartment and helped me take me here and there and get me set up and register for English class and all that. (laughs) (laughs) And then you ended up going back to school in Connecticut. Did you and you got a degree? What did you get a degree in? Yes, yes. My degree is in mathematics. Okay. Wonderful. So yes. then once you got your degree, did you what did you do with that degree? I found a very nice job in a corporation um, in Hartford, Connecticut. Wonderful. I, yeah, I've got a salary job, the real job. <laughs> <laughs> no more having to work in the fields. No more rights field work. <laughs> yes. So I um I was so so happy that I able to get on my own feet and support myself and spot and bring my family over. So, yeah. Were you able to send money or anything back to your family until you were able to get them here? Yeah. Wonderful. Yes. And so then you write this book, how you survived the killing fields. What inspired you to write the book? Was it people hearing your story and your journey? And they said, you got to write a book or did you just know somewhere in you, you needed to do this? There's a few reasons. That, that's one of the reasons. Many, many of my friends encouraged me to write a book after they heard the story that I told them. And then one time while I was speaking in the women's group and one, one lady in the group, she cried. And I found out that she lost her, her teenage child through suicide. Oh, that hurt me so much. I, I, I did not realize. I was so naive. I thought that, you know, people in this country must be happy. And it's a beautiful country. It's a really prosperous country. It's not like in Cambodia. How could anybody be sad? But when I found out that story, I realized, oh, maybe if I write my story, if people 
have hard time with their life, maybe after they hear my story, it might help them change their mind from taking their own life. So that's that's what I was thinking at that time. Well, yeah, you were the one that you could have very easily died and you just clung on to life. You knew you there was more. You had so much more to give mm-hmm. in this lifetime. And that is such a powerful message, you know, for somebody who thinks, you know, suicide is such a permanent solution to a temporary problem is what I say. Yes. And so that really inspired you to write your book. So you write your book. How long did it take you? Maybe about five, six months. What? I've been writing a book for 22 years. (laughs) No, you're you're not writing. You're just thinking. (laughs) Yes, I. it's uh, analysis paralysis. Yes, you are correct. I am overthinking probably. So you write this book in five or six months. Did somebody publish it or did you self-publish? I pay somebody to publish it. Okay, wonderful. And so you write the book and do you see that it's it's already making an impact as soon as you publish it? Do you see people coming to you and telling you that it has inspired them? Yes, yes. I got so many testimonials that I changed I changed their life somehow, some way. Some people just said, Sarah, thank you for your story. I'm I'm <laughs> I cannot complain anymore. <laughs> right. That is so true. Yeah, I mean it really puts things into perspective here in the United States. I mean, just even you telling me your story, I realize how ignorant I am for immigrants. I didn't even know the process. You know, you're telling me that your uncle had to sponsor you. I had no idea. I mean, it just shows how, you know, sometimes us as Americans, we don't really understand how great we have it, I think, to be in this yeah, because country. You, you, don't, you don't have to go through anything like that. Right. So you, you don't know. It, you know, it's not your fault. Right. So, um, yeah, some I, I've heard one lady that was in my audience and then I met her a few months later and she confessed she said Sarah I have to tell you something you changed my life I said oh my goodness tell me <laughs> tell me she said I have been suicidal all my life she's in her late 20s she says since I heard your story now I have a new life. I hold on to this full-time job. I have my own apartment. I am a changed person. Wow. So it's just like, you know, it's all worth it. Struggle in four years in the right field. Now I can save somebody's life. It's worth it. That's so incredible. That isn't incredible beyond measure what you're doing for people and sharing your story and that you had the fortitude to get through what you did. And I'm sure it fills your cup to be able to share your message and your story with these audiences and also through the platform of your book as well. Yeah. That's incredible. So how many talks have you done so far? Do you know, have you kept count? How many motivational talks have you given? Oh, many, many. (laughs) When I first started after I wrote my well before my before my book was published I was already speak speak in the community you know 
for free. I speak for free. Yeah. But, and then later on, I cannot afford to keep speaking for free anymore, <laughs> you know? <laughs> so, so I I start to build my professional speaking. So, yeah, I have been speaking a lot. That's incredible. So when did you, how long ago did you write the book? I know it took you, you said five to six months, but how long ago did you write it? Seven years ago. Okay. Do you think you're going to write another book? Well, I was thinking about it, but but I think the book business, it's really draining. Mm. You know, the idea, the power of the book, it's really powerful. But the people don't take it, don't, don't, don't recognize the value of the book. Mm. So it's very hard to promote the book, to sell it and, and, and expensive. So I'm not complaining. I'm not negative. <laughs> right. But it's just like, you know, you have to think one way or another. What? Well, I have been thinking about it. <laughs> <laughs> what, what would the next book be about? Would it be more about your life or would it be an inspirational book? Would be inspirational book. Love that. Will be about lesson learned. Yes. Through through my journey. Yes. So we need to get more books sold from this podcast. So we need to make sure that happens. How can somebody buy your book? They can go to sarahm.com. Yes, S-A-R-A-I-M.com slash book. They will find it. Are you also on Amazon or the Kindle or any of that stuff? No, just on my website. Okay. So everybody listening, go buy a book. Go buy a book. <laughs> go buy 10 books. So where where is your next speaking engagement? Do you have that lined up? Yeah, my next speaking engagement is next, next Sunday, the 16th. I speak online on the summit. Um, I can send you a link and, and I don't know how you can tell your people. Wonderful. Uh, yeah, the summit is on Eventbrite. Okay. Yeah, it's called. Hmm. It, oh, it, it escapes you. It's a long name, like um, advance in business and prosper in life, something like that. It's Do you uh, have a calendar of events on your website, the Sarah yes. Oh yes, yes, yes. They go to um to my website. They will see that event that I'm talking about also. And yeah. Wonderful. Do you have any social media handles? Let's say somebody listens to this podcast. They want to follow you on Facebook or Instagram or Twitter or wherever you may be. Do you have that as well? Yes. Yes. I'm on LinkedIn a lot. Um, Sarah M. Slash speaker slash author. Well, Sarah M. Dash speaker dash author that's on LinkedIn and on Facebook I have Facebook page Sarah M S-A-R-A-I-M and my profile my Facebook profile I had to add one more M to my to my profile to my last name because there's some something about Facebook which we don't have time to go into <laughs> <laughs> Okay. <laughs> so you just had to add an extra M. I got it. All right. That's good to know. But actually, I do have a question for you. Was your name Sarah in Cambodia or did you adopt that name when you came to the United States? 
I adopt that name. I have been using Sarah for the last uh, 40 years. Wow. But my book is published in my my um, original name. And what is your original name? It's Sarup M. S-A-R-O-E-U-P. Okay. So I, I didn't know. I didn't know if you just heard the word Sarah or the name Sarah and you decided, oh, I want to be Sarah. But your your ori- original name, your birth name is very close to Sarah as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. That, that's the reason. And one American lady that I have her, she could not pronounce my original name and she asked for permission to use Sarah. So I gave her that. I accept that. <laughs> You gave her the permission and then it stuck. It's stuck. It's stuck since. Yeah. <laughs> now, have you been back to Cambodia? That's my main question since this has all happened. One. One, one time. time. Yeah. What was that like for you to go back? It seemed like a different country. It's In a good way? In a good way. In a good way. It grew a lot. A lot of younger children a lot a lot of younger people um but the people that i know before my like my cousin my aunt my family they are still the same that's that's the best thing when i went i got to see them very good visit with my family that's wonderful so you've been married 33 years which tells me about seven years into be being in the United States, you found a husband. Yeah, yeah. How did that happen? I love hearing these love stories. Tell me. <laughs> give me the brief version. <laughs> oh, not much romantic. It's the, the introduction. <laughs> I was introduced by my cousin. So, um, yeah. Is he American then? Is he no, American or from, Cambodian? He's, he's Cambodian. Okay. Wonderful. 33 years. Congratulations. I'm 40 years old and I can barely stand to be with myself 40 years. So I don't know how you can be married to something. No, I'm just kidding. For 33. Do you have children? I have two stepsons. Wonderful. Well, it sounds like you've really made a wonderful life out of the journey that you were given. And I love that you didn't take that hand that you were dealt in Cambodia and say, oh, I'm going to give up. I mean, you were on death's door, really before they put you in the infirmary and you just have so much resilience and hope and triumph. And that's what this podcast is about. So uh, I am just so honored that you've been here to share that story and that journey. A couple more questions before we end, we're kind of running out of time here. Um, And then before I go into 20 questions as well, my first question for you is what are you hoping the listener is going to take away from our conversation today? My hope is that my list, the listener will have hope. Yes. Hope. Yes. Hope. When you, when you don't have hope, there's nothing happen. There's nothing to, to expect. So hope is the first really important thing. Hope, you know what hope stands for? What's that? Have only positive expectation. Yeah, I like that. I've never heard that before. That's awesome. Did you come up with that? No, oh. one of my, <laughs> I adopt. <laughs> okay. 
I love that though. That's so beautiful. And yeah, you, like I say, you are the epitome of hope. Like you really just display that in, in your journey and what you're doing now in life. What's on your five-year plan? What do you hope to accomplish in the next five years? My five years plan. I want to have um, courses that people can dig down into my resource. Okay. Get the information to help themselves because I cannot speak forever because I'm getting old <laughs> and my voice, <laughs> my voice is getting weaker. So by then I will have some courses available to help people to, you know, rebuild themselves after they've gone through either abuse or setback or loss or trauma you can also always bounce back. Mm, I love with, that. With resiliency. Yes, you mentioned. <laughs> I love to speak about resiliency, how to build up your own resilience, because resilience um, is like a, like a saving account. Mm-hmm. You have to put deposit into it. Every time you do something good for yourself, you add the deposit into your account. But when something bad happens, you take a big withdrawal. So you never, never want to deplete your resiliency. You have to always keep adding into your resiliency account. I love that. That's so beautifully said. It's so true. Yeah, that's so amazing. Okay, next question that I have for you is, uh, what do you know for sure? What do you know for sure? What do I know for sure is change. <laughs> yes. Things always change. If we are in a bad situation right now, think about change. It can be better. Every day is another chance to turn it all around is what I say. Every yeah. day you wake up, you have that opportunity to change what you don't like. If you don't like how you look or how you feel or your spirituality or your finances, every day is that gift, right? Yes. Every day. Yeah. It's never too late. Yeah. Sarah, you are such a light. Thank you so much for sharing that story and sharing your wisdom and, and just your journey. I mean, I'm so grateful to have you on the show and and uh, everything that you're doing to help people in the community. And I believe your five-year goal will happen. You you will have these courses. And I bet you'll probably put out another book too, even though it's kind of a labor of love. But uh, yeah. yeah, that's incredible. All right. Let's move on to 20 questions, if we may. Okay. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're a little nervous about this one, huh? All right. So choose a number between one and 20. All right. 11. This kind of, I think I know the answer to this. What is your favorite word and why? Oh, my favorite word is, well, gratitude. Okay. You threw me for a loop. I thought you might say hope. So tell me, (laughs) tell me why gratitude is your favorite word. Gratitude. When you are grateful you will change everything around. You become more positive. You cannot be sad and depressed and feel grateful at the same time. It's not possible. 
So if you want to live a good life, be grateful. Love it. Oh, Sarah, I could talk to you forever. You have such an amazing story. You are such a lighthouse. Keep shining your light out there for others to see and to be a beacon of hope for others that they too can make it to shore, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And that life is always, it can be changed at any moment uh, to be resilient, to be hopeful. And again, that gratitude that you just mentioned. Gratitude is something very important. And I think sometimes even in the simplest things, we can find gratitude, right? So I know mm-hmm. myself over the last couple of years, I've tried to work on like a gratitude journal and just even name like five things in the day I'm grateful for. And I remember when I first started this, I'm like, man, what what five things? It was like really hard to mm-hmm. come up with five things. It's like, no, 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 no. I'm living, I have a roof over my head, I have food, you know, even if it goes down to the basics, things that we kind of take for granted, I think, or we just don't think about rather, Yeah. Um, to really find gratitude in that. I think that was very sound advice. So thank you. Thank you yes, so much. Yes. If you get into a bad situation, look for something to be grateful for. Yes. There's always oh. a lesson. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Wonderful. Well, thank you again so much, Sarah. And those of you tuning in, please go find her on her website, buy her book, follow her on social media, uh, LinkedIn, all those good things. And maybe catch her in an inspirational talk somewhere around town or anywhere in the United States. So thank you again, Sarah, for your time. And as always, you guys, you are worthy. You are enough. Yes. And keep on shining your light. Have a great day. Thank you for listening to Speak Loud. If this message resonated with you, please feel free to share it with anyone you feel could use the support. To find out more information about SHARE, our movement, and to join the cause, please visit sharethemovement.org. Until next time.